Welcome to episode 33 of Some Like It, Scott, and episode one of the new and improved Some Like It, Scott. If you listened to our last episode, you know that from here on out, we are switching to a leaner and more easily digestible format of one review and news per episode. That change begins today, but one thing that stays the same is that I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, today we will be weighing in on the 21st film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Captain Marvel. But before we dive in, I want you to describe to our listeners your theatrical experience of watching this movie, specifically your neighbor, because you were telling me a horror story about you know what you had to go through. I got to tell you guys, I, you know, I should have known that you were going to ask me about this because <laughs> I was texting you when I was, so I saw this movie at a Thursday night preview and it was, I mean, it was sold out completely. I get in, I get there pretty early. I mean, pretty early for me is like getting in there right when the, right when the um, previews start. So like the, the trailers, yeah. cause usually I'm like 10 or 15 minutes late. Cause I, I see so many movies. I don't need to see the trailer, like 25 minutes of trailers every single time I go to the theaters. Uh, but you know, I, I walk in and this guy's already there. And the, I will say that the, the, my other neighbor was totally fine. I had a little, a couple of calms with him about his thoughts on some of the trailers, uh, his feedback from the trailers. Some of them was pretty interesting, <laughs> but the guy on my other side was already there. And, you know, credit to this guy, he had really made going to Captain Marvel Thursday night a real movie-going experience for himself, which, honestly, I have no problem with. I have no problem with people, you know, you know, when they decide to go to the movies, making it, like, going all out, making it a full experience. It's not how I like to go to the movie theaters, but I respect and, and understand that some people do it that way. But his idea of a movie-going experience for himself on a Thursday night to see Captain Marvel was getting to the theater early, props to him. And then purchasing a very nice snack pack for himself, which <laughs> consisted of a tray that, you know, you have your large drink. But then there was an amalgamation of absolute horror on this tray. It, it consisted of chicken fingers, which is already, Scott, I know that you think this is a cardinal sin in the movie theater to get it, chicken fingers. Especially if it's but, buffalo chicken f- fingers, which is what I believe this gentleman had. Yeah, and but yeah, it's a cardinal sin for probably for Scott for getting chicken fingers. And then, but then he had buffalo chicken fingers, and to really put the cherry on top of his chicken finger experience, he also decided to get honey mustard dipping sauce. And I have to tell you, Scott, honey barbecue is totally fine. And I know that's a mixture of like, I mean, it's not honey mustard and, and barbecue sauce, but it's like somewhat close to that. But the idea of buffalo, the the smell of buffalo sauce and honey mustard was almost vomit inducing and it it took it a step further that he also had a large popcorn (laughs) and so the mixture of buffalo which i actually i like all these things separately but like the mixture of buffalo honey mustard and fake butter sauce on his popcorn really complimented my my movie going experience yeah i mean most people will know that i am anti-sauce uh in most contexts like I, i prefer to eat most things plain like even salad I'll occasionally have like an Italian or Greek dressing on it, but I mainly just eat like dry salad. 
and, and and these smells are one of the major reasons I'd be lying if I, if I said they weren't uh, of why I just don't like sauces like stuff like buffalo sauce, honey mustard just turns me off before I even like taste it. Like the, the smells are so bad. And then you throw that fake butter in there. I mean, like to me, there are few smells in the world worse than that fake butter. Like, cause it just makes me think about what is in that liquid. Like it's not butter. Like, let's be real here. Like there's nothing resembling butter that probably makes up the, the chemical makeup of whatever that liquid is. I mean, I can't imagine just the, the nauseating swirl of aromas that you must have experienced, but that obviously sounds very unpleasant. Yeah. The, the, to really cap it all off though, I will say like ha- about halfway through the movie, he, he finished his platter. He actually like folded <laughs> up the popcorn bag and everything. He was done. I don't know if I should be horrified or impressed. I'm not, I'm not even sure. I mean, hey, like you said, the man came to have an experience, and I imagine he had an experience in his stomach as well. An experience unlike any other. <laughs> That's for sure. But now it's time to find out whether the movie Captain Marvel was an experience unlike any other. Scott, as I said, Captain Marvel is the 21st uh, MCU movie and the first since last July's Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yet despite being the 21st film in the series, Captain Marvel is the very first MCU f- film to feature a superhero who... Wears a nine-inch nail shirt, uh, and it's also the one to the first one to feature a female superhero as well. Uh, that hero is Veers, a fighter pilot from the alien race called the Kree, played in the movie by Brie Larson. As the movie opens, we learn that the Kree are at war with a shape-shifting race called the Skrulls. But when one of her missions goes wrong, Veers inadvertently ends up on Earth in the 1990s, where she catches the eye of Shield agents Nick Fury and Phil Coulson. Played, of course, by Samuel L. Jackson and Clark Gregg. With Fury's help, Veers embarks on a journey to settle the war between the Kree and the Skrulls, while maybe learning a bit about her own mysterious past as well. Scott, Captain Marvel is the final film in the lead-up to the Avengers Endgame, so my question for you is this. Does it feel like filler, or is it a fresh and original addition to the already stacked Marvel Universe? I guess to start off with, I will say she's not the first female superhero in Marvel. And I know you didn't mean it like first this, but just to, to clarify for me. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. For, to cl- just to clarify before we get annihilated in the comments, it is just the first female led <laughs> one. And, you know, the fact that we have to open with that, talking about the 21st Marvel movie in the franchise, is probably teller enough that it's a long, uh, telling enough that it's long overdue. And so I look forward to future movies where we don't have to talk about it, the fact that it's being female led. Uh, in a sense of like, oh, wow, what is this land? This landmark event is amazing. And, and that's not to take away from the fact that it is a female-led film, especially a female-led film by Brie Larson, who I think is one of the best actresses in the business. And I think that her performance here in Captain Marvel it confirms that for me. And I think she does a really, really good job. I'm really excited about this character uh, in the movie. And I'm really excited about this character going into the future of the MCU, because I imagine the fact that she's just being introduced now, they're probably not going to kill her off in Endgame. That would be that would be something else if, <laughs> if they did that. Um, <laughs> But but I guess to, to, to talk more about the movie itself, you know, you gave you gave like the option of is it does it feel like filler or is it a fresh new take? It's probably somewhere in the middle, uh, maybe leaning a little bit more towards filler. To, to be honest, I think it was it was an experience. I think it was really awesome. Uh, some of the visual effect, the visual effects in this film are really flashy. I think that. Some people have joked that the Spider-Man Far From Home trailer for Jake Gyllenhaal's character Mysterio, it's just a whatever leftover Doctor Strange special effects they had to like throw into Mysterio's <laughs> character. That's why they're doing that. Uh, I, I don't think this is 
leftover Doctor Strange and visual effects for what Captain Marvel, uh, Brie Larson's character is doing here, Veers, Carol Danvers, the many names that she goes by in the film. I, I think that the visual effects are really, really good. That being said, the visual effects being amazing, I think the best parts of this movie are still the the intimate character moments that you get. So the, there's these moments, I, I think most commonly, I should say, between Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson, so between Carol Danvers and, and Nick Fury, that their chemistry is, is something special. You know, you saw it kind of on the press tour that they did for this movie. If you watch any of their interviews, they clearly uh, play off each other and get along really well. And that's just, you know, that's evident in the, in the movie. You also, I think, get the the chemistry between Carol Danvers and also, oh, I'm forgetting her her fellow pilot's name, Maria right Rambo, now. I believe. Yeah, Maria Rambo, who's actress again. I'm completely Lash- blanking right now. Lashana Lynch. <laughs> Lashana Lynch, right? I think their performances together, or, or I should say, first off, Lashana Lynch's performance is is really really good, and I think that their chemistry together is is also one of the highlights of the movie. For me, it's one of those things when I talk out all the different individual parts of this movie, I all feel like, oh, I probably should feel better about this movie. But this movie really does feel like somehow less than the sum of its parts. Because its parts, when I talk about them individually, are really good with the exception of, of maybe the plot and, and the narrative for a large part of the movie, which I think is by far its its weakest outlet. And just for some reason, when you when you put it all together, it doesn't quite sum up to what I thought it should be. And and for this being the first female-led Marvel film, it probably deserved something better. That being said, if at the end of the day the goal was to get me more excited for you know the cinematic experience or, or the because movie moment of the decade, if that is the ultimate goal here to to get you excited and, and more ready for that, it, it did accomplish that. Yeah, I think that's kind of the problem, that the goal is mainly to get us excited for Avengers Endgame and not really to introduce us to a new character, um, because I don't know that this movie does a very good job of introducing us to a new character at all. I think, for me, this movie kind of felt like Marvel is so familiar with its universe now, and like everyone everyone is so familiar with all of the characters, you know, the world, where we are in the storyline, that it almost kind of seemed like, and I, I know there's different people involved with this movie than, uh, you know, than with past Marvel movies, but it almost felt like they had forgotten how to tell a new story, like tell a, a I mean, I guess origin story to some extent, but also just to introduce a new character into this universe because we're so used to, oh, we're just dropped right in. We know who everyone is like, and that's fine because we do know who everyone is. But I think they don't spend enough time developing the character of, of Captain Marvel, of Carol, Carol Danvers, played by played by Brie Larson, and I think especially in in you know in the first let's say thirty to forty five minutes, like I had I, I had no idea what was going on. Um, to to be perfectly honest with you, and you know we get this scene towards the end where, or she says to I believe it's to Jude Law's character that you don't know who I am. Like, don't tell me who I am. You don't know who I am. I don't even know who I am. And I'm like, yeah, none of us know who you are. And like that's that's the problem. I think that. The character of of Captain Marvel, of Carol Danvers, never really establishes much of an identity, I think. Like, much of her her backstory is told sort of like in this very, like, disjointed memory slash dream sequence section, like, towards the beginning when she gets captured by uh, some scrolls. And, like, I'm I'm like, wait, so what's going on here? Like, they, they don't explain what exactly is going on as they're jumping through the different memories. Like, are these real memories that we're seeing? Are they things that they've implanted into her head? And like, you know, eventually you figure it out. 
but uh, it's it's very confusing. And and I also felt like the central thing driving the plot. There's an object that they're trying to obtain, and I was like, I don't understand why they're trying to obtain this. Like, this doesn't seem like th- this just seems like a very boring standard sci-fi plot. And then once it's revealed, you know how exactly well, why it's significant, what they're looking for. Uh, then okay, I was a little more on board, but that doesn't really happen until the last thirty minutes or so of the movie. And I think that that was the time when I finally did get on board with the movie. In the last half hour or so, I think once we talk about spoilers, we can talk a little bit more about why it was that that last half hour grabbed me more. I think than a lot of what came before. But yeah, I, I mean, there's some nice like nostalgia moments, uh, you know, because obviously this is set during the 90s. So I thought there was some really good uh, soundtrack moments in the movie and just, you know, sort of gags about technology in the 90s. I thought that a lot of the humor worked pretty well, as it does in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, frequently. But I don't know that I agree in terms of and we can, you know, hash this out a little bit. In, in a minute, but I don't know that I agree that I thought the, the chemistry between Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson w- was overwhelming. I think I wanted a little bit more there. I did, I will say, I did not want a romance because that was, I think, the one area where Wonder Woman misstepped. Also, I, I, the ending was a little bit wonky in, in Wonder Woman, but I think that that the forcing her into a romance with with Chris Pine's character was was uh, an unnecessary step, and they don't do that here to their credit. But I think if you could take the ending, the last 30 minutes of this movie, and tack it on to the end of Wonder Woman instead of the ending that we had in Wonder Woman, then we might finally get the female-led superhero movie that we deserve. But unfortunately, I, I, I probably am even a bit more negative than you are because, like I said, I think the, the action did not grab me until the end, and the borderline incoherent storytelling certainly did not. And, and that was disappointing to me because I, I came in with high expectations just because of who was involved. I, I will say that I do agree with you. I think that at the end of the day, this movie doesn't establish any idea, any identity for Carol Danvers ever, even in the flat, like even after you put together all the flashbacks that we have, right? Like you still don't know who she was. Like, you know, she was a pilot and she had a friend and she had a men- and yeah. she had a mentor <laughs> and that's all, you know, like you, Okay, I guess you know something about her. Like she had abusive parents or like unloving parents. I don't even know. But you don't learn. Yeah, you don't, don't learn know. that much about her past. And I do think this movie does a little bit better job establishing an identity for Captain Marvel. But you don't really establish an identity for Carol Danvers. Yeah. Maybe one day, like in a future movie, in a se- in like a, a direct kind of independent sequel, we'll get a better identity for who Carol Danvers is as a person. But right now, you know a lot about Captain Marvel. You don't know a lot about Carol Danvers. And I think that is what left me. I think that's like maybe, and that's the, that is the biggest narrative hole in the plot. I think it's fair to say, because the best Mm -hmm. moments of the movie to kind of circle back around to what I was talking about before is when you learn or you start to get a little bit more into who Carol Danvers is, because that's Brie Larson is the most interesting part of the movie. And it feels like this movie needed to be something different than the formulaic Marvel origin story, because I actually think this movie's quite a lot like a lot of the other MCU origin stories. And I think that most of them just aren't really that great relative to some of the more recent yeah. movies. I think, I mean, there are some exceptions. Don't get me wrong. Like the original Iron Man movie is a great, is a great Iron origin Man, yeah. story movie. And Spider-Man Homecoming is, is a great, mm-hmm. if that is, 
if that counts as an origin story for Tom Holland's Peter Parker and Spider-Man, then that's a good origin story as well. But when you think about the other ones, like Captain America, the first Avenger, not a great origin story, in my opinion. No. Thor is not a great origin story, in my opinion. Like like the origin stories themselves, like even like Ant-Man, Doctor Strange. I like these movies, but they're not the better movies in the franchise. And so it's not that it, Marvel does a bad job telling origin stories. It's just that if you if they want to make a movie comparable to something like Black Panther, which again is one of those standout origin stories, if that counts, if if Captain America Civil War isn't the origin story for Black Panther, which I think is a, there's a fair argument to say that is the origin story for Black Panther. But that being said, I think if, if you want to make a movie the quality of Black Panther or if Infinity War or Thor Ragnarok, some of these more recent movies, it's just the the formulaic MCU origin story is not how you're going to do it. And there are flashes in Captain Marvel of them trying to do something different. But the problem is they just didn't lean into it. They didn't give you enough of it. And so it ends up being, you know, kind of half messy and half not quite sure what it wants to be. Cause you know, then this movie transforms in like the middle third into this like weird, like buddy com like not a comedy, but like buddy movie where you have captain Marvel, Carol Danvers road tripping more or less with Samuel L. Jackson and trying to, you know, get to the bottom of who she is and, and what's going on and what her past is. And it's not that it, it, they couldn't be worked into some movie in the MCU, but it feels out of place in this origin story. And it feels like that that insertion of that different kind of genre of movie just didn't quite jive with the Marvel formula that is spread throughout the rest of the movie. And I agree that by the like the last half hour it picks up and especially you know the the spoiler that you're referring to i i agree it made more sense i think that a lot of times the like idea of oh we need to get this really special thing that's going to change i, I think that plot thread was there before i think it's kind of an, an overused plot plot thread you know that being very said, overused i mean that being said like it's not that it i mean it is unoriginal but i understand that like you know there are there are only so many so many uh, I guess motivating factors that you can apply to movies and uh, like trying to get a valuable objects. Like you could do worse than that. I suppose pa- part of me felt like really uninvest for like a good part of the movie, a good chunk of the movie. I felt uninvested in, in Ben Mendelsohn's character. Who's one of the scrolls. And then by the end of it, again, that half hour really, really picks up on all fronts in terms of character development. It's just a shame that it takes 90 minutes to get there because it, I do I do. Sometimes I'm not so sure that I believe this when I say it, but in this case, I think I really do. I believe that it really could have been worked in better up front. And I, I think they tried to do something interesting with the idea of working their way back in time, basically. I mean, yes, time is moving forward through the film the entire time, but the whole mo- point of the film is that you discover the past, essentially. And it, it just doesn't. They tried to do something new by uh, kind of laying out that framework for the movie, but they just don't execute it on it particularly well. Or it's a little bit too plotting. Boring's not the right word, but it's just fine. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe some of these holes that we're talking about, I, I agree with with you that I think some of them will come and do to like some of them will be wrapped up in due time. Like I think we'll probably we probably will learn more about the Brie Larson character down the road. But I think that just kind of serves, you know, the point that I'm making about why this movie didn't work for me, because it feels like it's it's looking forward when it really should be spending the time to, you know, get us uh, acclimated to this character, you know, endear us to this character, a Captain Marvel. And I think they're really sort of just looking ahead to Avengers Endgame. Uh, but at this point, why don't we move into talking about some of the performances? You highlighted Brie Larson's performance as one of the highlights of the movie. Um, and I'd love to just hear your deeper thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I think Brie, Brie Larson in most of the movies that she does really brings a a particular, I guess, kind of aura about her, the way that she you know performs her roles. And and that's not to say that it, everything that she does feels the same, but there's always this thread of similarity of, you know, she's a really charismatic, captivating person to watch on screen. And I think that's no less true here, even when you really don't have any idea what, what like what the deal is with her backstory. It, it, it's almost like in, in spite of the fact that her plot, her, her like her narrative arc is so confusing and, and messy. I still really enjoy watching her on screen. And I don't know if that's something that that, that, that description resonates with you in terms of in spite, like in spite of what the story does. But to me, mm-hmm. I, I'm always captivated by her. I think that her like wit and humor that she brings to her role, like regardless of how it's written, is something that really vibes with with me. And I really enjoy that. And I think I, I definitely put her, and I know I said this already, but I put her in the category of people who, you know, no matter what she's in, I, I'm ready to go watch her in the theater because even though I think she does challenge herself with different roles almost every time she goes, you know, stars in a movie, I think she's the kind of person that not only puts in a different performance, but does allow you to see the similarities and how she kind of carries herself, how she acts. And, and a lot of that, and I was just reading some interviews might be to the fact that you, we don't really know much about Brie Larson. Brie Larson is a pretty private person in terms of her personal mm-hmm. life. You never really see her in the news except for when she's like, she's publicizing a movie. And that's something that I think adds to cult of personality of Brie Larson. And I think that benefits the movies that she performs in. I think she's great as well. I, I still think that her performance in Short Term 12 is one of the best performances by any actor this last decade or so. I think it's just an amazing performance. And, and that movie is incredibly underrated if you haven't seen it. But yeah, I think she's great here as well. And I, I re- what I really like about what she brings to the character is that there's a real like anger in her performance. And I think that that works well because there's this whole thread in the movie of like, and they beat you over the head with it. But, it, you know, for, for the feminist angle that they're going for, it works of, you know, she's frequently criticized for being too emotional. Right. Like, there, you know, the early on we get that there's this pilot who tells her, oh, you know, you're too emotional to to be a, a good pilot or whatever. And really what they're saying is not you're too emotional. It's you're a woman. So you, you shouldn't be, a, you know, a pilot or whatever. And and that's clear. And so, but I think that what Brie Larson brings to the character and sort of turns this thread on its head is, is that, you know, she uses the emotional aspect of her character. She uses this anger, like that is what empowers her. And when she finally becomes, you know, the full Captain Marvel by the end of this movie, like the access is the full range of her powers. Um, she does it like by using this anger that has empowered her, you know, against the largely male characters who, uh, you know, have tried to, to subjugate her. And there's a one really great moment involving one of the male characters who's going off in this rant about how, oh, we're finally going to find out, you know, if you're too emotional or, you know, this is the moment for you. And like, as he's in the middle of the rant, she just blows him backwards with like her little arm blaster thing. I don't even know how to describe her, her power. blast. Yeah. It's a great comedic moment, but it's also like a very satisfying, like, moment for the whole feminist angle of the movie, you know, she, and then she, you know, she follows it up by saying, I don't have anything to prove to you. And I think that's really what, what, you know, the, the whole, the central theme behind her performance is she doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. Um, you know, sh- she's legit. She's here to kick butt just like all of the other Marvel superheroes. And so I appreciate that they didn't go for like the, you know, the pretty princess, 
you know, superhero, like, you know, you could argue Wonder Woman is that to an extent. I think that there's a real sort of, you know, fury to her performance that I appreciate. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great way to put it. And, and the idea of her being an, an, an emotional superhero and that relying on her emotions, I think that's spot on. It, it, if they do beat you over the head with it. And I mean, even from the outset, you're talking like Jude Law's character mansplaining to her how to be like an effective warrior yeah. was like, I mean, it sets the tone for that sort of sub sub thread of the plot in the movie. And yes, they, they do return to it and like to remind you of how, like how many times people have told her that if you were just less, essentially, if you were just less female, you would be better at the things you were doing. And to see her at the end go, you know, I mean, for the lack of a better word, Scott, like she's just totally badass at the end yeah. of the movie between the the scene that you were describing where the where f- comedically <laughs> she blows the person back in the middle of the rant. And then also, you know, the end of the movie where she accesses her full powers and goes up an entire like, you know, a fleet of ships um, and turns them around. Basically, that was I mean, that's the that's what that's like the superhero part of the movie that you came for. And one of the things that I did pre- appreciate about this movie to just. Uh, go off on a tangent quickly from Brie Larson is that yes, this movie ultimately again, as as all superhero movies do boils down to who can hit harder, who can use their powers better, who has more powerful powers. That being said, they don't beat you over the head with like how much more powerful she is. Like, of course, yes, there are moments at the end of the movie where, there are just fight scenes of her like beating up a bunch of people, et cetera, et cetera. Those are to be expected. But one of the biggest plot, I mean, one of the biggest problems with the end of Wonder Woman, since we've mentioned it already, is that it really like that final fight, unlike in Captain Marvel, in my opinion, that final fight did just come down to the fact that like, all right, it's either Ares or it's Wonder Woman. Whoever like hits right. the hardest is the one who's going to win the fight. And it just felt a, like different enough to be interesting at the end of, of this, of this Captain Marvel. And I think that goes back to the point you were making earlier uh, I mean, yeah, there are other problems with the end of Wonder Woman as well, which you mentioned about the, the kind of the the love arc with her and, and um, Chris Pine's character, Steve Trevor. But here to go back, I think Brie Larson, I mean, she just does a, a wonderful job. She she you can see her develop over the course of the film in a way that's not her changing her emotional nature and how she fights, but changing in the sense that she's like you can see her processing who she is. And, and although we don't learn all about who she is. Of course, these memories coming back to her are an experience for her and are overwhelming for her to understand what happened. And when she finally does, it does feel like she acts that arc to completion, even if that arc itself leaves you wanting a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's fair. So now I want to talk about someone who, for me, you know, you said Brie Larson was a standout for you. I think for me, this person was was the highlight of the cast. And that, of course, is Samuel L. Jackson, who I think you could fairly say is the other lead here as Nick Fury, this is really, of course, we've seen Nick Fury before, but chronologically, this is like the first iteration of Nick Fury before he become, before he really becomes the Nick Fury that we know from all the Avengers movies. So what did you think of his performance, Scott? Yeah, you know, this is the kind of performance that I wish Samuel L. Jackson had been given earlier in the franchise. Yeah. Every time he's appeared, it, with the exception of the first Avengers movie, it's always been in such a minor role that, you know, you see him for a few minutes he gets his token scene and he's out. And that's kind of the, that's the end of the story really. And I was really excited to one, I mean, like a year ago, two years ago, whenever it was, it was announced that he was going to get kind of a full starring role in this movie because yes, it is kind of weird to see him de-aged on screen and know that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like the 70 year old dude acting out these scenes. He doesn't look that different, though. Let's be real. Like, Samuel L. Jackson has aged pretty well. No, no, no. That's not what I meant. I, it's weird to see him de-aged 
and know that like if he were actually 25 years younger yeah. or whatever that like he would be a little bit more spry and nimble we'll say than yeah. this character is able to be that's yeah, fair, it's, yeah. it's one of the the things right like if you have a 70 year old i mean i actually don't know how old samuel jackson is i'm i think he's 70 ish uh you know if you have him uh in a performance where he's supposed to be you know he's a he's a what, a shield operative who's in the, like a field agent that's running around that's doing like is in some action scenes like you gotta there are limitations to what a 70 ish year old person can do uh relative to what a 45 ish year old person can do and so i think there are limitations on that front but that's such a minor complaint because i think that samuel l jackson really hit like really hits the right tone for this type of movie you know his tone has always been very different uh in all the other movies and, and you understand why when you see this movie relative to others because you know he's not he's not as jaded yet right like he hasn't this is the origin of the avengers initiative and this is samuel l jackson's in some ways origin story as well and, and in some ways it's a, it's a better origin story for him than it is for carol danvers uh, mm. even though i do like brie larson's captain marvel ultimately a little bit more than i like samuel l jackson in this movie that that being said i, I think that you learn a lot about the origin of Samuel L. Jackson, of Nick Fury's character. And in some ways, what you learn about that is more is uh, as more gratifying and more satisfying than what you learn about Carol Danvers. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think one thing that, you know, your your comments kind of touch on as well is I think this performance is a little bit different from his other Nick Fury performances in a good way, because I think he's he's clearly having a lot of fun here. And I don't know that we get that from the Nick Fury. Like, I, I think in a lot of the other Avengers movies, Nick Fury is more of a self-serious character. You know, he he's not one of the characters, you know, like let's say Iron Man who's always cracking jokes. But here he gets to he gets to have a lot of fun in this sort of bantering relationship with uh Brie Larson's Captain Marvel, although I still think I I wanted more from that relationship a little bit. But I think that he's always great. And, and the fact that he's having fun here, you know, it really benefits the humor in the movie because I think there are some some lines and some jokes that are probably not funny on the page, but are funny when Samuel L. Jackson is delivering them. Uh, There's one thing that made me laugh where he's talking about the, uh, the welcome wagon. And he's like, you ever heard of the welcome wagon? Uh, And she's like, no. And he's like, well, this ain't it. And like it, you know, it's one of those things where like, it probably wouldn't be that funny on the paper, but the way that Samuel L. Jackson delivers the line, it had me laughing. And there are definitely other moments of that throughout the film. And so I think that for me was, was the strength of this performance. Yeah. It kind of reminds you of all of the movies that Samuel Jackson did 20 to 25 years ago. I shouldn't say maybe some of the movies, but the performances that he gave and it reminds you that, you know, yeah, time's passed a little bit for uh, SLJ, but he still got that ability to deliver lines to your point that, you know, probably aren't all that great on paper but can still do it. And I think that you've given a really good example of that joke in particular, but he's just the perfect person for this role, right? Uh, Someone who ultimately isn't, I mean, to be really clear, like this person's not like a mentor character. That mentor character is a character we'll talk about shortly, probably. But what you get instead is you get this person who is kind of a friend, but really, you know, both of them, to be fair, are reserved and rightfully so. And I think they just strike the right tone uh, for throughout most of this movie when they're acting together. So, and it sounds like for you that their chemistry didn't quite spark for you. But for me, I think that the way that I expected them to play off each other, the way that I expected both these characters to be reserved, the chemistry that you got, I think it, it, it was intentional that way because if they got along perfectly and their chemistry was amazing, it would feel kind of out of place because these characters don't know each other. These people don't know each other. And 
they should be reserved. They shouldn't be so easily trusting in each other throughout the, like maybe by the end of this film, you could argue they could be there to me. I'd even still argue you know, maybe, maybe not, but I think it, it's the chemistry that they do exhibit on screen is, is the kind of chemistry that I would expect these two real life people, if this were real life, of course, to, to have. And so that's, so when I say that their chemistry is great, maybe the better way to put it is I think the chemistry is right. Yeah. I think maybe for me, it was just some of the dialogue was a little bit of a letdown, but I hear what you're saying. Nevertheless, I think it is great work from the third most famous person from our hometown after me and you. Finally, moving to the supporting cast. Um, we, we've talked about a lot of them so far, but, uh, you know, just to, to throw a few, a few names out there, of course, Ben Mendelsohn uh, plays Talos, who is sort of the main uh, scroll character in the movie. Jude Law plays a character whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Uh, he's like the mentor of... Uh, of Brie Larson's character. Uh, and we also have Annette Benning, who uh, plays a, a mysterious figure in Brie Larson's past. Scott, were there any, did any of these performances stand out for you or, or anyone else in the supporting cast? You know, we mentioned Lashana Lynch as well, who I, I, I agree with you, I think does a good job. Yeah, Lashana Lynch is great. Jimma Chan, although a minor role as Min yeah. Irva, I think it, it does a good job. I It's so weird when I was like watching theater and I'm like, that's Jimma Chan. And I'm like, She's this is a such a different role than Astrid from Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. She's unrecognizable for sure. Oh, I mean, I mean, it is difficult to recognize actors and actresses when they're painted blue. Yes. Um, to be fair, I think not in terms of a performance, but to see Clark Gregg back as Phil Coulson, I, that was like the one moment in the movie where and I'm kind of surprised this was the only moment, but it was the moment in the movie where everyone cheered when they pan yeah. and you see Clark Gregg on screen because it's such a beloved MCU character. So it was great to see him. Uh, of course, you get a lot of cameos in this movie from the original Guardians of the Galaxy movie. So you have Lee Pace as Ronan the Accuser, mm-hmm. and you have is it is it Jimon Hansu? Yeah, I don't actually know how to pronounce his Jaiman name. Hansu, uh, yeah. as, Jaiman Hansu as Korath, uh, who is also in that opening uh, sequence in <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. With I'm just thinking about it, and it makes me laugh because it's such a funny scene. Um, and then, but yeah, I think the performance from Ben Mendelsohn for me, like I said, I wasn't super vibing with the character for a long period of time. But I think Ben Mendelsohn is, I just love seeing, like, I just love him as an actor. You know, I can't say that he's ever like put in a performance that that's necessarily wowed me, but I just think that it's always, I always like smile a little bit when I see him in a movie. And I think by the end of this movie, I was smiling with his character and also with his performance as well, because Talos, although not a super interesting character at the beginning of the movie, once you actually learn a little bit about him and once the, you know, kind of the plot and the narrative does him a little bit more justice or gives him a little bit more time uh, at the forefront. I think by the end of it, I I did like his character quite a bit. I don't don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that his character's arc is interesting given the way that, you know, the conflict is set up at the beginning of the, you know, the movie. And I think that like Samuel L. Jackson, he brings a nice sort of light touch to his performance. There's some humor in it as well, as well as, you know, some stuff that we learn about his character, pers- like his character's personal life towards the end of the movie that I think, you know, wins some sympathy for his character and, and makes this a winning performance in the supporting cast. Agreed. And then I guess kind of the last two notes to touch on are Jude Law, who plays Jan Rog. I'll, I'll take a stab at it for you. And uh, then Annette Benning, who plays the Supreme Intelligence, which is the AI kind of ruler of the Kree Empire. Yeah, which I still have no idea what the Supreme Intelligence is. Let's, I mean, like, 
you you've explained more about who the supreme intelligence is than I think is clear from this movie because they like start talking about it at the beginning and I'm like wait what is this and they never explain it really yeah it's I mean I think it, I actually think the movie it does a good job not trying to explain it because it, I don't think it's a simple concept but essentially Scott if we do want to try to take a 30 second explainer the supreme intelligence is the it's like it's an AI collective that is supposed to be the representation of the collective intelligence of the best minds of the Kree. And the Kree have decided that that it like that collective intelligence is the best way to like rule their, their people. And so that's why it like represents a different person for everybody. Right. Well, yeah. I, so that that's difficult to explain. I don't think that's actually related. I think that what it is, is it's the whole idea of that. Like it's an AI, like it's not a physical thing. And so really it's all in your mind. And so, because the supreme intelligence is supposed to be this like higher power or higher intellectual power, right? Like it's supposed to be a mentor. And so the person that you revere or respect the most is how it appears to you. I think that like, don't think too much about it. Like we've already probably given too much time to like thinking about it than yeah. we should in this. But I think Annette Benning does a, a good enough, like her, her performance is good enough. I, I think that Annette Benning has probably done better things in her life than this role. Um, she also doubles as Marvell. Doctor and Doctor Wendy Lawson, who is sort of, I, I guess the best way to describe her is she's Carol Danvers' mentor, and then Jude Law is Captain Marvel's mentor. Yeah, but it's, I think maybe that's the best way to describe it. So, like when Carol Danvers was in the Air Force, this Doctor Lawson character, who we learn is actually Marvel, is her sort of mentor as a as a strong female lead in the Air Force, where uh, females are often, uh, I guess, unwelcome is the best way to put it at, at the time. And then, so yeah, I think her performance is good. She isn't asked to do all that much. She's Annette Benning. I mean, I, I don't know how else to describe it, really. And then with Jude Law, I think his performance is good. Very menacing. I, I like a good menacing Jude Law. But that being said, I also couldn't escape just hearing Albus Dumbledore now in this performance. <laughs> and it was like a very hard thing to shake during the movie, which isn't Jude Law's fault. But I'm just like, Dumbledore, is that you? Yeah. I don't know. For me, these two performances were a little bit disappointing. Number one, I love Annette Benning. Like, I think she's great in everything. Uh, and so, like, I, I don't think it's her fault. I think it's just that her character isn't given much to do. And I think, you know, a lot of that very complex mythology around the supreme intelligence maybe keeps her her character kind of at, at an arm's length. And Jude Law, for me, like, I don't know. I When I see Jude Law, I expect something more. And I felt like this role could have been played by anybody, right? Like this is kind of just the toxic male, uh, you know, influence in, in Brie Larson's character's life who, you know, is thrown in there for her to overcome, which I think works well in the movie. But for me, I'm kind of like, does Jude Law really bring anything extra to this character? I don't think so. I, I could have seen a lot of other actors doing that role. I think that's a fair critique. I guess from my perspective, and maybe this is exactly what you're saying, but there's just, so much of a ceiling put on what you can do with this character. I mean, this person's not a super villain and this person's like not a crappy character. It's just like comfortably fine, right? This yeah. character's a fine villain. You're not going to remember him 10 movies from now as the, as like a good villain. And you're not going to remember him 10 movies now as one of the worst villains. He's just like average. The, I think the problem is just, they got my hopes up by, by putting Jude law in there and then kind of just gave him a bland character. I think maybe that's really what I'm trying to say. Totally. I think with an actor of the quality of Jude Law, and you can make this, I mean, you can also say this about several villains of Marvel movies past. I mean, you have, is it, is it Jeff Bridges plays like the villain in the original Iron yeah, Man? Obadiah Stane. Yeah. yeah Ob- Obadiah Stane. 
What a great and, name. You know, Hugo Weaving plays, plays the, the original. Skull, yeah. Yeah, plays Red Skull and Captain America, the first Avenger. I mean, there are a lot of really strong actors who have played Marvel villains. Um, granted, I think both of those are probably have a little bit more personality around them. And, and so when you have an actor of the quality of Jude Law and of the star power of Jude Law and, and the ability of Jude Law, of course, you hope for something more. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it's just I think if there's one area where the Marvel Universe has had trouble, it probably is with this villain. I guess the 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 one you would point to as being the most compelling is Loki. But even he like flirts with being a hero as well. No, Loki's an anti-hero. I mean, I guess he's the villain in Avengers, I guess. But like, yeah, he's an anti-hero. And I mean, if you're if I was to have to t- sit here and tell you the two most compelling villains in the MCU, it'd be Loki and it would be Killmonger. <laughs> yeah, Killmonger's a good one. And I think Thanos, you know, I think Thanos is a good step sure. as well. Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's Overall, good point. I don't think that this character, you're right, is going to go down as as one of the best. But let's briefly, since we haven't talked about full spoilers yet, let's briefly talk about that, that last sort of reveal there uh, about what it is that they're searching for. You know, mm-hmm. so full spoilers now, if you know, if you haven't seen the movie yet, skip ahead a little bit. But, uh, you know, we do learn that the energy core that... Uh, everyone is searching for in this movie is actually the Tesseract. Um, so did that sort of reveal work for you? It actually, I mean, I think, did it, I don't know how to answer, did it work for me? I will say I was very surprised by yeah. the fact that it was the Tesseract. Um, so in that sense, I guess it worked. In other sense, after the surprise wore off, I'm like, why did they need to be looking for the Tesseract? Yeah. <laughs> uh, why Why is it? Why is there always need to be an Infinity Stone? And I get it. Like the first three phases of the MCU are about the Infinity Stones at the end of the day. So maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. And so the, the reveal does work in that it, it caught me off guard, but it also just felt like, I, okay, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm winding myself back here. It actually makes a lot of sense that if Brie Larson is going to get power from something, it's going to be the Tesseract. So I think the reveal works for me. Yeah. It just made me care a little bit more about the plot just because I'm like, Oh, okay. Like this is how, this is why this energy core is significant. Here's what the stakes are. Like for me, that was the main thing is it gives you a sense of the stakes of like, okay, like, now this is starting to come into, you know, focus in, in the larger Avengers universe. And so I understand, you know, why it's significant, who ends up with this energy core. So I think for me, the, re- the reveal did work because uh, I was largely uninvested for most of the plot into, until, you know, that we get that reveal in the last 30 minutes or so. It's interesting that it doubles kind of as an energy core and also like the actual Infinity Stone itself, like allows you to just travel through space. Mm-hmm. Uh, at sort of infinite level, and so in that sense, it's, it it's, it makes sense that it's being used. Like, why the scrolls want they want to use it to escape to a different galaxy away from the Kree. That being said, like it's weird that it's being used as like a hyperspeed drive. It, it it felt a little bit messy around like why it's being used, but ultimately, I think you're right. When we learn it's the Tesseract, we understand the stakes a little bit better, and we understand how it, ultimately even this plot thread ties back into the MCU. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Uh, and so briefly before we you know, get to our wrap up, uh, let's talk about well, particularly the mid credit scene, because uh, the post credit scene doesn't really reveal much. It's kind of just a humorous moment. But uh, the mid credit scene uh, is pretty telling, you know, in terms of what we're talking about with what's to come in Avengers Endgame. You know, we see Steve Rogers and Natasha and Bruce Banner. They're all they're all uh, in a laboratory of some sort with the pager. Uh, and it took me a second to remember, but of course the pager is Nick Fury has it at the, in the post credit scene in infinity war. 
and like sends a message right before he gets dusted. Yeah. And so they're examining the pager, kind of trying to figure out what happened to Nick Fury. And then Captain Marvel appears and asks where Nick Fury is. And, you know, we get a little sentence there confirming what I think most people believe, which is that Captain Marvel is going to be an Avengers Endgame. So, I mean, I, I take it you're excited about this, Scott. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely pumped. I walked out of the theater and I think it's it's almost a shame that this is what I the, my first thought walking out of the theater was like, oh, shit. like this is in game's going to be even better now. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if it's the job of this movie to get you hyped about in game, this put like this mid credit scene gets you more hyped for in game because yeah. I love Brie Larson. I love that Brie Larson is going to be in game. And clearly she's one of the most powerful superheroes that we've come across so far. And she's going to play a huge role. And I can't wait for like two weeks from now or a week from now when Marvel drops the next trailer for Endgame that's going to have Brie Larson in it, what, what it's going to look like. It definitely gets me excited for that. And what what role her character is going to play uh, in, in Endgame, I think, is, is going to be interesting to see along with everything else that is going to be going on in that movie. Um, if it's possible to be more hyped, I think we both are now. My only other thought about this mid credit scene is mm-hmm. that I did not understand how on earth they got a hold of his pager. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, so, so, so this is a, a related question, I guess. Are we just to assume that that Captain Marvel just kind of chilled for 20 years and then like ended up here? Or are we going to have something more about how she ended up in the modern timeline? Because she doesn't look any different. Like it doesn't look like she's 20 years older. Or anything. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Like there could be some lore around the fact that like when you're super powered in, in a way like the Tesseract you live for a much longer period of time. Actually, no, that's 100% it. She's Cree. I forget that she's Cree now, and Cree live like really long lives. Okay, well, there you go. That in, ter- in terms of the pager, I don't really know because like, didn't it kind of just like fall in the street after Samuel L. Jackson got dusted or whatever? Yeah, to- totally. Like it's just sitting there in the street. Like I have absolutely no idea how they recovered the pager because it's not like, uh, was it Colby, Colby, Colby Smulders' character, Hill, Agent Hill doesn't live through the, the yeah. snap either so i have no idea how they ended up getting the pager yeah i mean hopefully we'll get that cleared up in avengers i mean honestly i don't i don't think it actually is important if whether they got it or not but that my first thought when they like showed them show the pager in the lab i'm like wait how on earth did they get yeah the pager? that's a good point uh yeah but so talking about it fi- sort of the final point here talking about it in the larger mcu uh you know world where do you think this movie stands in terms of the, you know, the 20 other MCU movies that we've gotten? Yeah, I mean, my gut says that this comes out somewhere in the middle. I think for me, the the this is sort of a, a middle bottom tier MCU movie. I think, you know, there are good parts to it, but I think the MCU in general, you know, has a lot of good movies. I think, you know probably what you what you're gonna say is that you know looking at the list you, you kind of realize that this movie doesn't really stack up to a lot of them I think it is better than some of those origin story movies you were talking about like I think it is better than the first Captain America movie for me and maybe even the first Thor man the first Thor is like one of the worst movies in the MCU I, I well the second Thor, in my in my opinion the second Thor is worse but oh for sure yeah that, I mean that's true like for me Captain America, First Avenger, Thor, the second one, and like Iron Man 2 are probably like the worst. But the, this one uh, is, you know, it, it's above those, but I, I, you know, it's it doesn't anywhere reach the heights that Marvel can reach and has reached in these movies. Uh, and so that's a disappointment for me. But, you know, I think better things are to come. Yeah, I think this I think where you like the rough place that you've described it is probably where this shakes out. I think that 
I'm looking through the list of movies here and I see like Doctor Strange. And I think this movie is like four different reasons is probably around the same quality as Doctor Strange. I know. I mean, they both have really good Rotten Tomatoes scores and like probably very average Metacritic scores if you're using like critic critic averages and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this is like probably better than Iron Man 2 and and Iron Man 3. I liked Iron Man 3, to be honest with you. I think that's I thought it was really good. I, I mean, I liked it, too, but I think that I will never be able to get over the fact that they think Chattanooga is they like some slander back, Chattanooga, yeah. town. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah they just, I'm not the right target audience for that movie. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I, it's yeah, amazing no, that Samuel L. Jackson let them get away with that, honestly. You know, it's his hometown. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't in Iron Man 3, was he? Well, I know, but he's part of the, you know, he's part of the MCU. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I forget that he's uh, he's from Chattanooga. I always forget that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think middle, middle tier. I, I don't know. I need to look at my actual like MCU movies ranked list to actually fit it in, which I mean, maybe I'll go make that on Letterboxd after this recording. But it, it's going to be I think this movie might age better than some of the other movies that I think are in the middle or bottom tier. But I also could be wrong. I could see that. What? So to wrap up, what's your favorite scene or moment from this movie? Uh, I love Goose so much. We didn't talk about Goose at all uh, on the podcast mm. today, and I do love that little flirkin. I think there are some really funny moments between Samuel L. Jackson and Goose, but I think the the moment that maybe it's too easy to pick, and we've already talked about it, but it really just is the best moment, is kind of the combination of Captain Marvel at the end of the movie flying like basically returning to sender oh like a, a i don't know if it's a nuclear missile or what kind of missile it is but just blowing up all these it's not a nuclear missile now that i'm thinking about it just blowing up all these bl- missiles that run in the accuser has sent down to earth to destroy earth where jude law's character has told him the scroll or have like inv- invaded and then yeah she blows all these missiles up she flies up she goes full power she basically just like claps back at ronan he's like oh i'm out of here <laughs> <laughs> and he bolts and and the look on Lee Pace's face here is just absolutely hilarious. And then she flies down, has that scene with, we are kind of hiding the eight ball here, but that has that scene with Jude Law, uh, her former mentor and just blasts him back. And that comedic mm-hmm. moment. I think the combination of that scene is like the badass moment of the movie we we're all waiting for. And unlike again, to kind of reference wonder woman, unlike the kind of climax of wonder woman, where I thought the, the final fight was like very boring and underwhelming, which is weird to say, because there are some cool special effects in that final scene in wonder woman. But I think the the climactic moments here in Captain Marvel and getting the superhero powers that you've been waiting for really don't let you down in this movie. Yeah, I not being a cat person, being very much not a cat person, the goose stuff uh, didn't do it for me as it obviously did for a lot of people because people were absolutely howling in my theater at some of these scenes. Uh, but, you know, more power to them, I guess. For me, my favorite scene or moment was actually like the last 15 seconds of the movie where we see Samuel L. Jackson at his computer. Basically, he's, you know, he's come up with a very rudimentary version of the Avengers Initiative, but he hasn't called it the Avengers Initiative yet. I forget, what's the word that he has in there to start? I think it's like protector or something. And then he sees a photo of Carol Danvers when she was in, her, uh, you know, an, uh, an Air Force pilot, and her, like, little tag on the side of her uh, plane says, like, Carol Avenger Danvers or whatever. And we see him, like, X out the middle word, uh, and you know the the initiative, and, and he starts to type Avengers, and like as as he does, like we get a close up of his face, and we see the or we hear the you know Avengers theme by Alan Silvestri in the background, and I was like, 
heck yeah. Like, and that's where the movie ends. And I was like, all right, I'm ready for an end game right now. Like start the movie right now. Three more hours. Let's go. Roll yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, so that was, that was an epic way to end the movie for me. What's your number? Yeah. My number here, I w- you know, I wish I could go higher and I, it, I, even after our conversation here, I'm thinking back, I'm like, look, like we said so many positive things about this movie and this movie is good. Like I would recommend you go see this movie for sure. If for no other reason than just to get you even as like kind of a hype movie for in game. But ultimately I, for some reason, when you put it all together and you watch it on screen, it just ends up a little bit less than the sum of, some of its parts. And I'm coming out right around a 7.1. Yeah, I'm lower. I'm at a 5.9 just because I think, you know, it fit so much of it feels like filler. Like, you know, I, we did speak positively about some things, but for me, most of those things were in the last 30 minutes. And at that point, when, you know, when, when you've gone for 90 minutes or so, not really getting me on board, it's hard to fully win me over in the last half hour. And that just doesn't make for a fully satisfying movie experience. So I'm, go- I'm saying 5.9, but I do think you got to go see it, you know, just to, to bridge the gap uh, before end game. Sounds good. All right. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we will be finishing the show off with a few news items. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before we finish things out for the episode, uh, we have just a few news items to go through that uh, have come out in the last week. Starting off on a sad note, I guess, we, we lost the actor Luke Perry over the week. I believe he was only 52 years old, but the the news had come out that he had suffered a stroke earlier last week and was in the hospital and obviously... Uh, what was more serious or than people you know were hoping and and he did uh, pass away and he's you know mainly known for his roles in in Beverly Hills 90210 he was sort of a, a teen heartthrob on that you know show in the, in the 80s and 90s now though he he sort of had a little bit of a resurgence uh, playing Archie's dad on Riverdale which i mean i think you know as far as i know that character was still very much a part of the the Riverdale series i've only seen the first season of Riverdale i imagine i'll have to do some some writing around what what happened but very sad uh you know to to see him pass away at such a young age yeah i know it was a really tough thing to see i haven't you know i haven't really seen much with Luke Perry in it but when you see someone go and see someone who it's clear was much beloved by the people that he worked with, not only from 90210, which there was a rumor about bringing, you know, reviving that show and bringing back the original cast. And then of course, also, like you said, starring Riverdale, you know, they were still in production for whatever season that they're currently filming. I'm not super familiar with it, but you know, I think that obviously will slow down production. I I don't even know if they've restarted production yet for Riverdale. I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if they take a couple weeks off just to, let, like give give that cast time to time to grieve time to time to pay respects to Luke Perry because you know you, he's probably had you know his the his, you know his peaks and valleys in his career obviously the, you you put it well his rise to fame with 90210 and then recently his resurgence with Riverdale but it, it seems pretty consistent throughout kind of the acting world that this person was uh, well respected and 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 much loved and just a, a good person and, and and like you said really sad to see someone die and especially someone who was only 52 yeah indeed 
Uh, okay, moving on now to a couple of items in Will Smith news. First of all, Will Smith has been cast as Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams in a biopic called King Richard. You know, I, some people have pointed out that it's kind of uh, silly to make a movie about the father when, you know, you have two of the greatest female athletes of all time. Like, why aren't we making a movie about them? And I'm sure we will get that movie at some point, but... I still think this will be interesting, despite me not being the biggest Will Smith fan, just because Richard Williams, obviously the coach for Venus and Serena, played a huge part in their successes as tennis players. Um, so I think it'll be something interesting to watch. Scott, I know you're a big tennis fan, so I'm, I imagine you're on board for this. Yeah, I hear the co- the criticism or the complaint about why are we getting a Richard Williams movie? Like, who wants a Richard Williams movie? That being said, I I, agree. I mean, one, I, I do agree. Like, I'm not asking for a Richard Williams movie, but I think it's going to be a really interesting story to tell. This has been on the script back blacklist for a while. So scripts that have been written that are good, but just haven't been picked up. And so it's interesting to see it's finally picked up. I, I'm not, I can't actually remember who picked it up. Uh, if anyone, if it, who has the rights to it, who's directing this movie, but it'll be an interesting movie. I'm on board for it. It'll be a very different role for Will Smith and in time. You're absolutely right. We will get that Serena Williams, Venus Williams movie, maybe together, maybe separate. Who knows? But in the meantime, we're going to hear a really interesting story about someone who had no tennis background whatsoever, decided, you know, at, you know, when his daughter, when Venus was four, um, that he was going to make them into tennis superstars and how he drew up that plan and was ultimately successful uh, in helping them achieve that, that fame, that glory, those titles, their success. And I, I hope this movie doesn't, kind of bleed too far into giving credit to female successes to a a male father figure. And that's my biggest concern about it. Mm -hmm. But I think if it's done the right way and if it's done with the support of Serena and Venus, which I'm surprised there hasn't been much news around whether or not they're supporting this movie and, and they're on board as like producers or executive producers. But I think in time, if that happens, it'll, it'll, it'll strike the right note. Yeah. Uh, Also in Will Smith news, uh, Will Smith, uh, has confirmed he will not be in the James Gunn Suicide uh, Squad film that is coming out uh, in the next year or two, uh, but he is being replaced. For me, this is a step up. I think you'd agree with me too, Scott. Idris Elba will be stepping in as Deadshot. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited about this. I, I don't have a problem with Will Smith. I know that you're not his biggest fan, but I love Idris Elba. I think that he was always he always was kind of under underappreciated as Heimdall in the MCU. So he's entering that rare, that rarefied space where he is, will now have been in both the MCU and the DCEU. And obviously Deadshot here is a more prominent character than Heimdall. Yeah, no, this should be good. My main thing with Will Smith is I just, I don't think he takes enough risks with his roles. You know, I don't think he does like, you know, we've talked about with Jake Gyllenhaal before where he never plays the same role twice. I, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that about Will Smith, but Nevertheless, he's not going to be in this movie, so I think Idris Elba is is a great option uh, to f- hopefully improve on uh, you know the role of Deadshot that we saw in the first Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, I, I liked it, and I liked Idris Elba in Pacific Rim. He wasn't one of like the superheroes, quote unquote, in Pacific Rim. He was like kind of the mentor general mm-hmm. uh, uh, role in that movie, but he's going to be the super villain in Hobbs and Shaw later this year. Yep. It, that 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 movie has lined up and so it'll be if, if i think if he does a good job in that movie i'll be even more more on board to see what he can offer in this new movie uh, the, the suicide squad this will be very important in the schmodown <laughs> yeah I, i'm very interested 
I don't know. I, I'm not fully on board with this Hobbs and Shaw movie just because I'm like, why are we introducing like robots into the Fast and the Furious universe? But we'll see what he can bring to the role. We're introducing ro- robots? I'm sorry, I don't follow. The, yeah, I mean, that's like what Idris Elba's character, at least from the trailers, looks like he's some kind of like almost cyborg type like robot, like in terms of like, see, yeah. the suit that he wears. Yeah, that, that's right. I think he's like introduced some sort of like metal into his like skeleton frame or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I don't make him more powerful. I don't know why we're really doing that in the Fast and the Furious universe, but you know, I'm sure the movie will still make a lot of money. Um, okay, something you passed across my radar, Scott, was this movie Irresistible, which is a uh, political satire. Really, we don't know much about it, but it's it's a political satire from John Stewart, former Daily Show host. Um, and we got some news on that, specifically that Rose Byrne is going to star alongside Steve Carell, who had already been uh, tapped to star in this film. Yeah, Scott, I, I know that Jon Stewart doesn't doesn't probably do much to you in terms of like him writing a political satire movie. Nope. <laughs> but Rose Byrne and Steve Carell, these two in a movie together. Really interesting because I think, well, I mean, obviously Steve Carell, a national treasure in my opinion. I think that he's great in, in, in most everything that he does. Even though I'm not the biggest fan in the office, I can appreciate that it's a it's a very great it's a great role from him. That being said, Rose Byrne, not known probably for her her political satire comedic roles. I know her best from Damages, and I thought she was great in that. And I liked her enough in uh, Juliet Naked last year. But we'll see. I, I'm looking forward to this. This is probably a, a ways out, and uh, I'm just hoping that it's better than Vice. That's what I was going to say. Surely it can't be worse than Vice, right? But that being said, John Stewart's name does not give me a lot of hope. But that's. That's probably, uh, you know, my perspective coming in. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are will be excited for this movie. Oh, almost almost certainly. People love Jon Stewart. Good for them. Scott, one of the bigger news items that came out in the last week was some comments made by Steven Spielberg about the Oscars and considering Netflix movies going forward. Uh, it seems that he was a little disappointed maybe about, or at least this was the subtext uh, beneath his comments, that he was a little disappointed about Roma getting the nod in some of the technical categories over his garbage box of a movie, Ready Player One. Uh, and so he's now campaigning for uh, the Oscars to not really consider Netflix movies, or if they do, for those movies to at least have some sort of extended theatrical run in order to be considered. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I I have no problem with him saying that he thinks that Netflix movies should get more extended theatrical runs. I think that's fair. My my thing though is that I just think he's a little bit out of touch here. I I personally don't read that as strongly as you do that subtext because I mean he's been talking about wanting Netflix to be excluded from consideration for Oscars for a while, not just at, and not just since Ready Player One was released and got no, it did get a nomination. Didn't visual it? effects, it did. yeah. Yeah, I got a visual effects nomination. So I, th- I think that he's just out of touch here. I don't read this as subtext. I just think that he doesn't appreciate that the vast majority of people aren't given free invites to sc- like every any movie that he wants to go see. And I think that Netflix is a platform that allows people to see more movies. And it also allows creative, it allows creativity for directors who otherwise wouldn't receive funding for ideas and movies that they have. Netflix is, is willing to throw money at directors to try different things with their movies. And some are going to be successful. Some like Roma, for example, are going to be very successful and others aren't going to be successful. You know, we haven't talked about this movie and I honestly haven't seen it, but you know, I know the critical reviews for a movie like Polar aren't very successful, but it tried something different. It tried some really stylized action that, you know, clearly didn't work for critics. I have no idea whether fans enjoyed it or not, but it's, you know, a movie like Polar probably would never receive money. And I'm not saying that it necessarily should or shouldn't. I'm just saying Netflix is a medium for directors 
to one, either get their start if they have an idea or two, experienced directors to try something new if production companies aren't willing to take the risk on it flopping at the box office. Because on Netflix, you know, you don't have to worry about that. And I, I think it's an intuitive thing to say that like more people saw Roma because it's on Netflix than would have if it had been in the theater uh, for an extended run. I think that that's not a controversial statement. I think that's like fairly true. Yes, Scott. Uh, no, actually, you didn't even see it in the theater, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I had the good fortune of seeing it in a theater during its limited release. And yes, I sat in a packed theater for that movie. And I imagine most of its showings were packed theaters at that indie theater. But that being said, if it's in if it's released in 4000 theaters nationwide, it's not going to sell that many tickets. It's just not. It's not it's not that kind of movie. And I just think Steven Spielberg, it, yes, it's coming from a good place in that he's trying to protect the quote unquote sanctity of the theatrical experience, which I think is something that I mean, one, I value really highly and think should be uh, protected and should be continued, you know, in, in perpetuity. But to say then that because a movie is released on a streaming platform and not released in a theater. It shouldn't be considered for awards. I I just think it's a bit out of touch. Yeah, I agree. I think simply just because of the accessibility of Netflix movies, we need to, you know, promote them and encourage them because I think more, you know, as you said, way more people watch Roma than they would have if it was only a theatrical release. And I think if we continue to have movies of the quality of Roma coming out on Netflix and, you know, are in Oscar contention, because you'd be foolish to say that every Oscar voter watches every single movie that's nominated. Maybe people will actually start watching these movies and we won't have movies like Green Book winning Best Picture. Just a thought. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thought. We'll see if that plays out uh, over time. I mean, I, I wonder if Martin Scorsese has called up uh, Steven Spielberg and be like, yo, you know, love you, man. But I love your movies. Love going to see your movies. Stevie. But, but uh, cut that out. Because this yeah. movie, of course, The Irishman is coming out on Netflix later this year. Our understanding is that, yes, that is going to get a an extended theatrical run. Netflix is obliging him. But I don't know if it would meet like the criteria that uh, Spielberg is pushing. Because I think it's he wants a four-week wide release. He wants that to be like the critical cutoff rather than just one week limited run. And honestly, forget Netflix, right? Like I think there are movies that are released by production companies that – you know, at the end of the day, just don't get the same theatrical. I'm sure there are movies nominated every single year that if it was forced to get a four week wide release in mm-hmm. theaters to qualify, just wouldn't do it because a movie like, I don't know, like something like Destroyer, which I know didn't get any Oscar nominations, but I got Golden Globe nominations. Like, did that movie re- like receive a four week wide release? Like some, Even- some movie theaters, some production companies aren't like won't put their their distribution budget behind movies they know aren't going to be successful. And that's not even from a streaming service perspective, right? Like they funded the movie, they bought rights to the movie, but they just don't want to take up the distribution schedule that they have putting it in the theater for four weeks. Even searching, I wonder if that had a four-week run. Like that, it may not have. Um, but I, I think your point is well taken. But okay, a uh, couple more things. Uh, so we have a, a 2020 Ghostbusters uh, film that is coming out, Jason Reitman. Uh, we'll be directing that. He actually got in hot water recently for some comments that he made, but that's old news. The new news is that uh, we have a couple actors who have been cast, Finn Wolfhard and Carrie Coon. Uh, Scott, I'm not sure how uh, excited this gets you, but I happen to be a huge fan of Carrie Coon. So I am, I- I'm glad that she is getting a starring role in this, or what, what appears to be a starring role in this movie, uh, because I think she has deserved it from her excellent work in other stuff for, for many years now. Did you like her in Avengers Infinity War? What, who was she in that? She's Proxima Midnight, one of the one of the Black Order. Oh, okay. See, I didn't even... I mean, she was probably in disguise. I mean, like, you couldn't recognize her, right? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. She's definitely... You couldn't recognize her because yeah, well, of all the effects. 
she, you know, she was in Gone Girls. I, I really liked her in the TV show on HBO called The Leftovers and just some other stuff as well. I think she's very strong presence. Yeah, no, I, I'm I I can't say that I'm as big of a fan, but you and John Rocco love Carrie Coon. So, oh, really? He's a fa- he's a fan as well. Yeah, he's a big fan of Carrie Coon. And you know, this gets me excited. I'm not the biggest fan of the Ghostbusters franchise, so I'm just lukewarm on this in general. But I know this is a big announcement getting a, a, a second reboot of the franchise in whatever, however many years. Let's not forget, too, that Carrie Coon was in Widows last year. Very small role, but she was in it. Who was um, she in Widows? She was like the other widow that they kind of forget about, but oh. Liam Neeson was hiding out in her house or whatever. Oh, that's right. I don't think he was just hiding out with her. I think that they were like absconding. They were going to abscond oh. together. I forgot. I didn't realize that was Carrie Coon, but yeah, no, I, I remember that now. Controversial. Okay. Uh, she hasn't been in that many movies, has she? Like, she's not, I like, think she's not young, but she hasn't been in that many films. The Leftovers is her, like, the main thing because that was, you know, a show for three years or so, and she had a, a pretty prominent role in that. So, probably not a lot of movies, but. And she, she had a main role in season three of Fargo, I see. She's an older actress, too. You know, she's one of these people, maybe like, you know, Brian Tyree Henry, for example, we've talked about, who's kind of having a, a career surge, like late in their career, maybe. Cool. I'm here for it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we, you know, we started off the show by reviewing Captain Marvel, talking about Brie Larson. So I think it's only right that we finish the show talking about Brie Larson and the fact that Apple has booked her to star in a uh, series about the CIA, um, it's based on a, an autobiography of a undercover CIA operative. I guess this is maybe going to be streaming on Apple somehow. I'm not really sure how they're going to they're planning to distribute this, but I imagine this is something that gets you excited, Scott. Oh, for sure. I mean, I mentioned it when we were ta- reviewing Captain Marvel, but Brie L- if Brie Larson's in it, I'll go see it. I'm always here for. I mean, I have no idea what the format of the series. I assume it will be a sort of like a limit like a limited tv series like an eight episode like kind of mini series kind of thing mm-hmm. um and because i can't imagine brie larson committing herself to a long-term tv show at this point in her career right but you know those are the kind of tv shows that i get excited for and with brie larson i'm here for it i have no idea if this like is a signal that apple is going to try to start some sort of like streaming service to go along with mm-hmm. of course, their digital platform there's been rumors that they're break- trying to break into the streaming business for a while and maybe this is the strongest indication that something's something's forming there yeah, we'll see. Hopefully this, for me, I, I would love for if this had sort of a 24 slash Homeland type feel to it. Um, that would be, that'd be great, I think. Okay, great. Well, that should just about do it uh, for this week's episode, this week's streamlined episode, we shall say. Uh, Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's fair to say that we'll probably have shorter episodes than this one. For a first short episode, this probably viewers may not view this as that short because i think it's probably there's a lot to out. talk about with captain marvel no for sure. sure but you know on a, probably our next step our very next episode probably will be significantly shorter than this yeah um, but yeah no people can find me at, at shelton 2013 over on twitter and you can find me at scarvy dent we hope you have enjoyed this episode of some like it scott if you have and you would like to support the show please don't forget our patreon page uh media plug pods but if you choose not to support it us over on patreon that's okay too we would still love it if you rated and reviewed us on itunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base and we hope you'll be back next week not in two weeks next week for our new episode when we'll be reviewing the teen romance five feet apart for now i'm scott harvey for scott shelton we'll see you next time bye everybody Mm